The theme song for the sequel cast is written and performed by Mark with a C. The sequel cast is also a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. You can listen to the sequel cast streaming on the Stitcher app at stitcher.com. Get more episodes of the sequel cast from sequelcast.com. Enjoy the show. And one after another, mankind surrendered its territories. So the leaders of men conceived of their most desperate strategy yet, a final solution. The destruction of the sky. There's always more to tell Especially when the video sales are doing really well From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6 This is Sequel Cast And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end This is Sequel Cast And your hosts are best that I inform you that the show Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a podcast that looks at movies in a franchise one film at a time. This time around, we are looking at The Animatrix. And this and, mo- movie has a unique distinction being both a prequel and a sequel and concurrent with all the other movies. <laughs> right. I mean, I think the reason why we're talking about The Animatrix is, as we mentioned in the last episode we did on Matrix uh, Reloaded, the second one, there's characters in there that weren't even introduced until the Animatrix came out. Um, it was a huge media thing at the time. You know, to get the full story, you had to watch the Animatrix in between watching the films while playing the video game all at the same time in some weird uh, neon green orgy. I don't know. It's, yeah, I mean, it was very. Str- it was certainly marketed very heavily. And some of these Animatrix shorts played in the theater. Um, so it, it, it should be noted, this came out in June... 2003 uh, matrix reloaded came out in may 2003 and then the um let's see here and then the the third one matrix revolutions came out in there it is october or november 2003 So if you count the Animatrix as a major Matrix-related release, and I think you can, that's three big things in one year. Yeah, like even even with the Hobbit films, they kind of leave a nice, gentle year between each film. Right. And, yeah, it would be like getting two Hobbit movies in six months. Yeah, it's, it's pretty aggressive. So... Uh, the Animatrix, the entire collection, was released on uh, on DVD, and then later it came out on uh, on Blu-ray and in box sets for the Matrix and so forth. Um, I guess we can talk about Thrasher. Did you see any of the Animatrix segments in the theater before watching the uh, DVD? I I don't recall seeing any of the segments in the theater. I know. Well, well, well actually, what movie? Well, flight, the Final Flight of the Osiris was the one that really got hyped because that was shown attached to a Stephen King movie. Yeah, and, and that's where I caught that one. It played before this awful Stephen King movie called uh, Dreamcatcher. And uh, not to get off on too much of a rant here, but at the time, Stephen King in real life was hit by uh, a drunk driver, a guy driving a truck. And got severely injured and was on all these pain meds. And he wrote the book Dreamcatcher while he was in the hospital. And it's like almost like a weird combination from like a zillion different situations from a zillion different Stephen King books. It's like uh, Stand By Me meets It meets Tommy Knockers meets has, has alien stuff in there. There's a little has bit of ET in the worst way. Uh, yeah, uh, literal shit demons. Um, weasels. But weasels, yeah. Uh, I believe Jason Lee is in that film. Yes, indeed he is. Yeah. it It's amusing after the fact, but I think at even at the time when that movie came out in... uh might have even been early 2003 or late 2002 even when they did that short um, in the theater. 
you know, Stephen King wasn't the the huge thing that he used to be on the big screen. It was more relegated to TV miniseries, like um, with that Shining Rosewood. miniseries they did. What was that? A ro- uh, what was the one? Rose something? Um, oh, with the Haunted House? Yeah. Yes. Right, and then like Storm of the Century, that was another one. Yeah. So, and you still get a lot of Stephen King stuff on TV today, like they did Bag of Bones with Pierce Brosnan, and there's a TV show, um, Under the Dome. Uh, anyway, this isn't talking about Stephen King. We're meant to be talking about Animatrix. So, but I, I remember going to the theater with friends. I had just transferred to Savannah College Art Design, and I went with my roommates and some of his buddies. We went to the theater. Uh, I think mainly to see this final flight of the Osiris. Yeah, most people I know just saw that short and then left the theater. See, I couldn't make myself leave, but yeah, it's... And that's gonna anyway... Be, that's going to be so weird for your box office to get most of, to get so many of your ticket sales from people who just want to see this short. Well, you know, it's like with Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, one of the movies that had that trailer attached to it was um, Wing Commander. Oh, yeah. And they say a lot of its initial gross that first day was people going there just to see. They'd walk in to see the Star Wars trailer and then walk out. And, and you know, it does, it does, <laughs> you know, make, uh, it does make me wonder because I really, I really wish we still had shorts in the beginning of movies. That, I think it would be so awesome if you got just a, a, a little short movie. And I don't care. It can tie into a big release that's coming out later. But just how, how awesome that would be to be able to go into a movie theater. You sit down. You, you watch some bullshit trailers. You see a cool short. And then the movie starts. Yeah, you know, the closest you see that, to that now is with the um, – what do you call it? The closest you see to it now is with Pixar. They have the short cartoon, or but you, you don't get short films, really. And I, I think, anyway, with the final flight of the Osiris, um, I, I remember I was in the theater, and there was an older couple next to me, you know, and they're expecting the Stephen King movie, and it says, you know, special presentation, final flight of the Osiris. And two minutes into this Matrix cartoon, the older couple next to me gets up, starts complaining, and walks out of the theater. <laughs> and said, I came in here to watch Stephen King. Now, I, I mean, I recall even at the time, like, the movie poster ads in the newspaper said, you know, the catch a special screening of Final Flight of the Osiris, the latest in the Matrix series, you know, the latest Matrix short film uh, before seeing the movie. So, I mean, they certainly advertised that you could go to the Stephen King film Dreamcatcher and watch Final Flight of the Osiris in theaters. Were other parts in uh, the theater? I thought they were. The only one I remember being in theaters was Final Flight of the Osiris, but I, I could like I didn't. The only ones of these I saw before the DVD release were the Second Renaissance Part One and Two. So I didn't see. Aside from that, I didn't see any of this until it was on DVD after the fact. You know, it does look like that four of these films out of all nine on the the DVD, were on the website for The Matrix at the time before they officially came out. Oh, yes. So I think maybe that's what I was getting confused at. But it looks like that, you're right, Final Flight of the Osiris was the only one uh, in the theater. Yeah, and I guess, well, let's talk about the the, the short itself. Uh, yeah, so we're, like we did kind of in our Heavy Metal episode, which is also about an episodic animated film, we're going to just talk about these in order. And um, I think before we jump into Final Flight of the Osiris, are you disappointed there's not like a wraparound story like Heavy Metal had? Uh, I don't think uh, I don't think this any of this really needs a wraparound story. I, I think the, the I'm, each of these shorts the the narrative is told in a completely different way, and I think adding a wraparound story would just complicate things. I see. Okay. Although, do you think it needs a wraparound? Um, you know, when I when I watched this for the the first time, it, the quality I think of the segments vary, and with the the second Renaissance pieces where you have some sort of narration with the really trippy neon yellow uh, graphics, they almost look like a screensaver. You could have done a wraparound, I think, perhaps with that. But then, I, yeah, I mean, there's not much linking the characters. I guess the only thing a lot of them have in common is they're almost Lovecraftian in the sense that the robots mostly win. Well, it, dep- it depends how you define victory. Yes, yeah, no, that's 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 true. But let's um, and I, I guess 
when you watched this DVD, did you watch it all at once before we talk about the first segment? Uh, I think I watched. I think I watched the first four segments and then watched the last five. Hmm. I, I think I, I know I didn't do it all in one sitting. I think that's how I divided it up. My first time watching this was pretty uh, pretty special. Not only was I drunk, but I also smoked pot for the first time huh. uh, with some buddies, and we popped in the Animatrix. I'm not sure and, this is uh, the best thing to watch the first time <laughs> you're getting high. Yeah. So, I mean, the first time getting high, that's – and I, I listeners, I really don't get high very often at all, maybe occasionally at New Year's parties, and even then just – but whatever, you know. Um, but anyway, yeah, first time getting high, you know, it, it, it'll hit you a lot harder than, than subsequent times. And yeah, I mean, the visual of this are trippy. The plot is kind of hard to follow in some of these segments. A lot of it doesn't have that much dialogue. And yeah, it is pretty intense. It's pretty overwhelmed. I think the, uh, the vodka and Hawaiian punch mixture I was drinking combined with the marijuana and the bean burritos from Taco Bell <laughs> made me vomit, I think, 20 minutes into the film. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was, uh, uh, something else, but yeah, so this first segment, final flight of the Osiris, uh, the, the people that did the animation for this was square pictures who, uh, the only other thing they did was the, um, CG feature length film, final fantasy, the spirits within. Oh Lord. That's a movie we have to do as a video game sequel cast crossover. I think you could do sequel cast cause you had two final fantasy films, even though they're not really related, but, uh, yeah, but so, I mean, Square Soft, at the time, you know, did Final Fantasy VII, all these video games that sold a shitload. So they decided, we're going to start a big 3D animation studio and, and dumped hundreds of millions of dollars into it. And they came out with Final Fantasy The Spirits Within, which was a flop. And then the, the last thing they got to make was this Final Flight of the Osiris short before shutting their doors. So um, I, I have to say, revisiting this so many years later, I think visually it's fairly impressive i mean it, it looks good although i still find a handful of uncanny valley problems with the human characters i think the the texture is good but like you don't you don't see beads of sweat forming their brow you don't see there's a lot of detail but yeah sometimes it appears a bit stiff yeah they, they look they look like beautifully painted dolls right right um so what did you think about this opening segment to the film? It's, you think it was engaging? It's it's fun, but I feel like it, it goes on too long. There's not much story. Uh, I got – like the, the flirty fight scene was – I got bored with it. I just kind of wanted something of consequence to happen. And then when, when it's all over, the only thing of consequence that really happens is that they discover that the machines are burrowing into Zion. And it's not – it's not the – at least when I watched it, I didn't take it as the huge revelation I'm sure it was meant to be. Right. I mean, in Matrix Reloaded, there's a throwaway line of dialogue talking about, oh, we got these images from the Osiris, and they make reference to it in the video game uh, Enter the Matrix. Oh, with Niobe. With Niobe, right, as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, the beginning, I think it's kind of cute, but the flirtation does go on for, for quite a while. And also, I mean, the dojo stuff is such a big part of the first Matrix film that you're seeing this. It's like, well, I've already kind of kind of seen this. Not that, uh, even though I'm sure there's fan fiction about this, not that Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne were whacking each other's clothes off, sneaking peeks at each other <laughs> in the midst of battle. But it feels a bit a bit too familiar. I mean, the thing that always strikes me as strange is you have a shot of the, um, the, the male character in this opening bit, uh, Thaddeus. He, he knocks out some of her clothing and he, he flip, you know, he, he raises an eye and you see like her, her cleavage or like her panties are exposed or whatever. Her bikini bottom is exposed. You can tell it was animated in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. And then when, uh, Jue, I think I'm pronouncing that right. The um, the female does something similar, kind of gets him down to his underpants. Uh, she kind of sneaks a peek, but then you don't see what her what she's looking at really. And that seemed like the weird double standard. Yeah, that that is actually very true. You'll you'll see far more full frontal female nudity than you will full frontal male nudity. 
in right, any it's not sense. like they would have. It's not like they would have cut to his penis flopping around. I'm not saying that, but well, well I'm, I'm sure the the physics. I'm sure the physics on the CGI <laughs> penis that Fair, that Square had originally designed would have been flawless. <laughs> but you know, this is this runs into the same. Because I guess, you know, despite the fact that I did get bored during the fight scene, I was entertained, but the Flight of the Osiris has the same big problem that Final Fantasy The Spirits Within uh, has, which you spend so much time trying to make these CGI figures look like real people. Why don't you just use real people? Because you're not doing anything that takes advantage of the fact that everything's in CGI. Right. I mean, alternatively, you could make the same argument with something like the uh, the recent live-action Transformers films, in which so much is animated, why not just make the whole thing animated? Yep. You know, if you just have humans pointing at, like, five zillion robots fucking around the screen, it's like, you could make the humans animated, too, at that point. Would it be that much more? I mean, it would be more expensive, but... So, yeah, I don't know. It's It's okay. Um... A lot of these segments, looking back on it, conclude with the Sentinels fucking shit up. <laughs> yeah, that's a real uh, theme they like to harken back to. <laughs> you have to I be reminded so. that these things are a threat so that when you see thousands of them in the third film, it'll have an impact. Which is more than what The Matrix Reloaded does, in which they say, oh, there's a bunch of Sentinels I hear, and then they don't show you anything. You're like, okay, gonna take your word for it, Neo. It's, um... Yeah, as we discussed last week, I think that was a big weakness of, of that film. Uh, the next two parts, or part one and part two, why they just didn't do it as one part, I, I'm fairly confused by. I think it's because it's so long. Yeah, it, it is one of the longer segments, and I think it's... Uh, this perhaps might be my favorite segment in the film. It is my the favorite second renaissance. segment. It, you talk about how the... The artificial intelligence and, and human develops robotics where they have robot maids in their houses. And then what happens where the, the AI kind of gets loose and there's a robot rebellion and a lot of human versus robot prejudice. I mean, they really cram a lot into these this kind of big segment, well, the second renaissance parts one and it's two. It's awesome because, like, pre- presumably what you're watching – like. What you're watching is like a document, a documentary <laughs> based on what actually happens between our present day and the time and the time of the Matrix, and it's it's sure. done like a documentary. It's got the narration, it's got archival footage, uh, and it's. I just love how metafictional it is. Although, if it goes all the way to the end, then the implication is this is a documentary made by the machines because there would be no humans left. Uh, to actually uh, recount some of the details that are exposed at the end of the second part. So what you see could have an unreliable uh, narrator. Possibly. It, it dep- I guess it depends on how, how you view the machines, because you know, for all we know, the AIs have perfect recall, and what you're seeing is exactly what they experienced. We don't, we don't really know whether, whether you know, the, the machines really have a capacity to lie or to fabricate or to delude themselves. It should be noted for these segments, the writer and director is Mihiro Maeda, and he's um, directed such anime uh, series as Count of Monte Cristo, uh, recently did one of the Evangelion kind of reboot movies, Evangelion 3.0, You Cannot Redo, and he's been an animator way back on, even as an in-between artist early in his career on the Miyazaki film Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. Yeah, there was a lot of crap so forth. Certainly. And I, I neglected to mention that the final flight of the Osiris, that segment was directed by Andy Jones and written by the Wachowskis. But Second Renaissance was not written by the Wachowskis, but it was inspired by something they wrote for, um, I think, some material that was in a comic book. Yeah, from the Matrix comic volume one, the bits and pieces of information segment sort of told their backstory. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting. It's very disturbing. The The big standout scene for me from the second Renaissance uh, segments is you see kind of kind of a riot, and the woman is getting the shit beat out of her. They tear off her clothes, and they whack at her head, and then you realize, oh, it's 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 an android. It's a robot. It's not a human. And But that you see the partial, like, robot exposed skull with, like, very human-looking breast, and they still keep on beating the shit out of it. As it screams, I just find that very disturbing. 
I was um, actually going to single that out as the most as the scene with the most impact in the documentary. Right. Um, ironically, one of my professors uh, from Savannah College Art and Design uh, said uh, allegedly that she is the voice of the woman in that scene. Huh. Although I looked in the credits, and she's not in the credits as that voice, so I don't know if it's something they did, they did afterwards, or because she worked at Sony at the time, who did the sound mix on this. Could have been. So, I mean, they could have. Could have just been yeah, one of right. those things. We need to scream. We don't like anything in the archive, and we're not going to use well, the. And we don't like what the actor did. Right. Yeah. The uh, the other thing that I like, you know, the, the I kind of experience every emotion in the Second Renaissance parts one and two. Uh, mm. Like, you know, I, lo- I I'm delighted with like the robot with the top hat that is be- the robot ambassador to the UN. Um, you know, things things like that that we see all sorts of different kinds of sci-fi robots. But there's this real absolute body horror in the end when it shows the machines winning their first real victories against against humanity, and it's showing what the machines are doing with the prisoners of war and how they're sort of developing what will become the Matrix. There's this absolutely horrific image where they ha- where this big machine is holding up this man. And for all intents and purposes, the entire back half of his body has just been cut off. And you can see all of his mm. organs and parts and his spinal column laid bare. And this machine just is just poking this needle into different parts of the exposed brain. And it keeps cutting to the guy's sort of slack face, like becoming ridiculously happy, then ridiculously sad and crying and just having all of his emotional centers played with. Right. It's... There's a lot going on in that. I mean, you could frankly do a trilogy of films out of this whole second renaissance. Yeah, there's segment, a lot of story packed into if it. If you wanted, a lot of information too. So, uh, on to the next segment. Ah, uh, yes, kids' story. Written by the Wachowskis, directed by Sinchiro Watanabe. Uh, Watanabe is better known for directing such. Um, hit series as Cowboy Bebop and uh, Samurai Champloo. Yeah. And it looks good, but this is pretty much just the adventures of, uh, of Neo Jr. Yeah, and I mean, and so this character, the kid, even though the Animatrix uh, was released after the Matrix Reloaded, uh, the kid is a character in the Matrix Reloaded, and his introduction is a big deal, like, hey, Neo, so excited to work with you, blah, 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 blah. And when you walk into the the Matrix Reloaded, you're like, who the hell is this kid? So this is his his backstory. And I think part of the disconnect here is in uh, the film, even though the guy's called the kid, he looks kind of like in his early 20s and is fairly muscular. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't look like a teenager. But he's in these sketches, idealized. yeah, he's too idealized, like a up-and-coming muscle man. But in, in this kid's story anime, you know, he he's supposed to be a high school student. And who they pick for the movie doesn't really look like that. And the whole thing is kind of, it looks like um, Rotoscope looks a bit like the uh, infamous AHA music video for Take On Me. Yes, it has, it, has a very, it has a very rough look to it. Which makes it stand out, but I don't think the story is one of the more interesting ones. I mean, Neo is there and voiced by Keanu Reeves. That helps him escape the... The Matrix. Well, I mean, it's just it's just the kid kind of running around and eventually throwing himself off the roof of his school, which is apparently enough of a shock to knock him out of the Matrix. And that's kind of one of the one of the things that shows up several times in these shorts. You know, in in the movie, in in the original Matrix, it's uh, they they explain how they break break people out, and that they get them to take the pills, which have these tracking programs which lets them track down your physical body and they can run like a force disconnect but multiple times in these shorts we have people breaking themselves out of the matrix right it's and it's like a and, bit... and you know, does this happen whenever mm-hmm. anyone commits suicide do they fall out of the matrix or, or like it, it raises a lot of questions that that i would like to see addressed what if you're just straight up murdered, but you see it coming? Does that knock you out of the matrix? Definitely. Was this kid um, special? Is there some wild fan theory that this kid is actually the real one? Right. Uh, a segment I liked quite a bit better is the next one, Program. Uh, written and directed by Yoshiaki Kawajiri. 
who's better known for directing such things as uh, the film Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust, the uh, TV, the classic OVA Ninja Scroll, and the weird Highlander spinoff Highlander The Search for Vengeance, which was an anime film direct-to-video in 2007. If you want to hear us talk about the most of the Highlander films, uh, check out past episodes of SequelCast at SequelCast.com. Yeah, this one, this one, I first I I hated it, but then I liked it because it because at first I'm like, oh great, another pseudo Japanese fight simulation for no reason. But unlike the fight sequence in the uh, final fight of the Osiris, this simulation actually has stakes. I love the idea of somebody putting someone in a simulation to bide time while the machines show up because he's decided that he wants to go back into the Matrix and take the love of his life with him, whether she wants to or not. It's an interesting spin. I, I think the animation here in program is, is pretty uh, pretty vivid and is almost more typical of what you would think of an anime from uh, this time period. Yeah, well, it would have it, it was giving me flashbacks to Ninja Scroll, although in only the best ways. Right, and this was done by the same uh, uh, director on this. Also, did Ninja Scroll, so yeah. It it, it does make you wonder if uh, the Matrix live action films would have been more interesting. You know, so if you have the concept of the Matrix can be wherever you want, why does it always have to be in a city running on top of rooftops? Or being in the subway stations. Well, I always figured that's because that's the environment the machines have simulate, chosen to simulate, so that's what they need to practice in. But I do like that in these shorts, we do get to see people creating other environments. Right. And that's actually something that I think would have been so much, it would have been such a great idea to explore, which sadly doesn't get explored in these things, since people who have escaped the Matrix can still jack into these pocket matrices, matrices they create why does no one just create like a paradise and get and have their pleasure center constantly stimulated and just get addicted to it? Hmm. I don't know. That's a uh, that's a good question. Because you know, if we if we have people, we we now this is our second instance of a character that escaped the matrix that wants to get back in. Why not? Uh, why why not explore that? Like, why can't they make their own paradise? <laughs> using the equipment that they have. Right, and then somehow use themselves to work together to defend their paradise and prevent it from being destroyed. Yeah, that's that's a pretty interesting point. How do you feel about the next segment, World Record? This one, I, I loved it for the, the sort of the hyperkinetic and super detailed level of animation with the the musculature on on the runner and i also just i do like the idea that just through just being determined and sort of hyping yourself up and getting that that you know dedication to de- that dedication in his case his dedication to a sport that you can push yourself to a level the matrix is not designed to deal with i thought that was such a cool idea Yeah, I mean this this one was uh directed by Takeshi Kuike who did some work um as as an animator on shows like Samurai Champloo and even uh directed a uh, a loop in the third film in 2014 fairly recently loop in the third Jigen Daisuke no Boyho. So um I think yeah visually it's it's quite distinctive i think that it's set on a racing track is is very unique i mean it's the last thing you'd think of with a, a story about the matrix and it's uh kind of sad too at the end what happens well not necessarily because it ends on this kind of ambiguously hopeful note because we have this we have this runner in the matrix who's able to this this athlete who's able to push himself so far that he breaks what these he 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 breaks what the matrix is capable of. He runs so fast that it destroys his simulated body in some amazing gore effects. And, you know, it stretches the matrix so hard that he, he temporarily is logged out. We get to see him wake up in his tank and we get to see him attacked by one of those sort of made spider things. 
And then he shows back up and, you know, he's been put back in the Matrix and the agents are talking about how they've set it so that he will have a record, a world record that will be unbroken, but that, you know, he had a stroke or whatever. He was paralyzed or whatever because of the stress that it put on his body and everything's fine. But, you know, he's a runner. He wants to run and he wills himself to start standing up out of his wheelchair, even though the simulation is programmed to have his body paralyzed. And I really like that. It really makes me want to know what happens next. Like, I really want to see what... I mean, I think it's a perfect self-contained story. But of all the characters in the Animatrix, this is the character that I want to see having their own adventure. Hmm. Like, I love the idea of somebody who might be able to break out of the Matrix, but have absolutely no guides and no idea what's going on and has to navigate this post-apocalyptic world. This I would have rather had them had them meet this character rather than the kid. Sure, no, definitely, it's a more interesting setup. Um, the next segment beyond, I thought was was fairly middling, uh, written and directed by Koji Morimoto, who has done work uh, on such films as Akira. And worked on uh, music videos as well, so. I liked I liked this segment right up until right up until about the ending, just because like it really did have a, a real sense of wonder. I mean, it's almost like an old like Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante kids adventure. Well, film. the kids involved in a house, looking in a house. Well, right? well a, a haunt. You know, they call it the haunted, haunted house, house, but it's just it's just a place in the Matrix where there's lots of bugs in the simulation, so they're able to do things like smash beer bottle, bottles that reassemble. There's uh there's a, a place where if you jump you'll stop before you hit the ground and you won't be injured there's like a doorway to nowhere it's just all sorts of cool inexplicable and strange things and of course we as the audience know why these things are there but these people don't and i just have so much fun watching these kids explore this environment it's okay i think frankly by this point of the film i'm fairly exhausted watching it the individual pieces are so different from each other and there's no you see, the, the one advantage I guess a frame story could have had is it could have had something to, to drag you through it. But it's such separate stories, and they're so random, they don't quite link in any way. In fact, despite the fact that they deal with the Matrix in some form or another. Well, you know, the the thing... The thing that I didn't like about the simulation was the end where, you know, eventually the the machines do realize that there's this place with all these bugs and that people are now interacting with it. So they, they of course, have to patch the system and fix it. So they have to clear out the kids and, you know, turn it into something else. But the way they do that is by sending a giant, terrifying, hot pink garbage truck with a with a horrific insect logo on the front, the kind of vehicle no one would use, especially if you were in a simulated environment, you didn't want people to know it was a simulated environment. That is exactly the vehicle you wouldn't use. Hmm. I mean, I get is it is it? What do you think? Do you think it's supposed to be a stylistic uh, exterminator's truck? I think it is. I mean, it's so strange looking. It's tough to tell. You just can't stop it, it staring at it. Just, stare it, at it. It just doesn't look like it belongs in the Matrix. And then that whole insect motif they have on it. Like, it's it's like the, the machines have never had a logo before. <laughs> Why would they need a giant bug logo now? No idea. But up until that point, I thought this was great. Yeah, um... The next segment I, I really enjoyed, a detective story, uh, directed again by Sinchiro Watanabe, and also written by him, and he also directed the earlier segment, Kid Story. But this one, it reminds me a lot of, of Cowboy Bebop, which is no surprise, because Watanabe also directed that series. But it just has a real nice film noir, black and white, really grainy look to it. Yeah, it was, it was it was neat. It looks like it was trying to sort of capture a little bit of the Blade Runner, uh, the, the, sure, the, yeah. the Blade Runner you kids like, just like with like the the weird mix of old timey and, and new tech and new technology, like that like that bizarre typewriter computer that he uses for some reason. Right, and that the. Um... It's a lot of close-ups of the, the main character smoking a cigarette, and that you have Trinity in there as well. Is uh, 
is pretty neat. A lot of it takes place on a train. I just think it's a real, real focused story and in visually pretty different. I mean, I think all these segments did a good job of visually looking fairly different from each other. Which was very refreshing. I mean, it would have been so easy to just kind of pick one anime style and to stick with that. Right. Yeah, but I guess, like, I I enjoyed this one, but it didn't leave much of an impression on me. I like it for the mood, I think, more than what happens. It it does capture noir feel very well. Um, This last segment is so fucking weird. Matriculated, written and directed by Peter Chun of Eon Flux fame. Oh, yeah. This was actually... so strange. I'm a huge fan of Peter Chung. This was actually the short that I was... had the most anticipation for. And did it live up to your anticipation? Mostly. I mean, it it clearly is uh, a Peter Chung... It clearly is a Peter Chung piece. The look, the feel, the way the characters speak and interact, the sort of... The sort of pseudo philosophizing and, and cryptic uh, cryptic dialogue that characters use, the weird turns of phrase, and I just like I love I love the idea of humans trying to reach out to the machines by capturing a machine, putting the machine into a simulated environment, and trying to sort of show that they can interact as equals, which is really neat. And I just you know I just love that that line that sort of sums things up. To an artificial mind, all reality is virtual. And not only that, I mean, the Matrix environment they interact with the uh, the captured robot is so strange looking. It's all these neon colors. It's there's not a lot of dialogue, which, which is another thing that that I'm so glad gets addressed because if you if you hypothetically with the Matrix technology you could simulate anything, including the impossible, but but this is the only time we ever really see people doing that. Aside from sort of the physics be- physics bending kung fu that Neo does, you know, but here here we have uh, a virtual environment that's pretty surreal, but designed to be that way. Right. And again, it also has a kind of hopeful note with where we have where we have the uh, the the ro- uh, we have the the machine out of this simulation who may very well now be able to sympathize with human beings. Maybe, but it doesn't, again, it leaves it up to your imagination. What happens? True. So I think we had a pretty detailed discussion here about the animatrix. What would you rate it out of five stars? Uh, Overall, I'm going to give it three stars only because I, I really think you only really need to see half of it. You know, I really only think you need to see the whole thing if you're a completist. But if I, if I had, if I had my way, uh, all the animatrix would be, would be second Renaissance one and two, uh, program world record beyond and matriculated. I think I'll give it two and a half out of five. Like, if I had to narrow it down and say, hey, I'm going to show you the greatest hits of the Animatrix, I would just show you Second Renaissance 1 and 2 and uh, Detective Story and and perhaps uh, Program. But the rest I can sort of take or leave. I mean, I appreciate it's very different animation style for each segment. They could have easily made the Animatrix, like, watch Neo beat up a zillion Agent Smiths for the umpteenth time. And they didn't. I give them credit for that. They really did something different with uh, mainly standalone stories with each segment. So, A plus for effort, but uh, yeah, I just have to give it two and a half out of five. It's not my favorite. And actually, something related to this, I remember when this came out, and I've seen this happen in waves, uh, but it was particularly when, when Animatrix came out, lots of people, uh, anime fans and and people who were uh who were taking animation courses uh would say to me that this was what was going to make anime go mainstream in america you know i think what made anime go mainstream if you want to call that is more like something like pokemon 
That's probably well, well. Actually, that was my my counter was my counter was that uh, anime already is mainstream. It's just that ne- uh, studio executives don't realize it, which is why you never see it in theaters. Even when it's a Miyazaki movie, it'll be in theaters for maybe one and a half days, and the only way you're going to see it is if you go to that one theater that's way out of your way. I think part of that is how much piracy there is. I mean, people, have, you know, mainly because of their love of anime, have learned how to read Japanese and how to translate all these things really quick. And you can get, if you know where to look, you can get pretty high quality fan translated stuff like the minute it's out in Japan. Although, well, this this was before all that, though. Right. This is before that was nearly as, as prevalent. But, he, but even then, you know, it, uh, in my experience, most piracy happens because of a lack of access. If I could, you know, if I could uh, see these movies in the theater, if I, could, uh, if I could rent them on DVD for a price that wasn't completely – rent or buy them on DVD for a price that wasn't completely out of sync with all other DVDs, you know, there, there would be much less incentive to pirate it. It doesn't help that when um, anime gets released in the theaters, it might be like for one week in five cities in the United States. Again, that's the problem. You know, yeah, very, very limited distribution. You know, it, it, which really just it, – it's not it, – it doesn't show the lack of the viability of anime. It's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. If the studios won't get it out into distribution, of course no one's going to see it. Right. Um, I don't really think we can do a pitch a sequel for Animatrix because it's such – it's. Weird own thing. Well, if if we did, uh, my my pitch of sequel would be what I described, where we have people who escape the matrix, who create a new paradise matrix for themselves, and then have to defend it. I guess, even though I just said I wasn't going to do one, I guess if I was doing pitch a <laughs> sequel for Animatrix, I would uh, give them the challenge of retell the story of the Matrix trilogy as an anime in um, an hour and a half. Hmm. So retail six hours in ninety minutes and make it all animated. Interesting. You can do that however you want. Um, you want to talk about the video games briefly before we move on to sequel news? Uh, we certainly we certainly can. Uh, I, although I I gotta say I have not played any of the video games. I've played a little bit of the the video games. So and mainly just from renting them back in the day. So mm. I will just say um, how it is. So around the same time as Matrix Reloaded, uh, you had the video game Enter the Matrix came out for PC, GameCube, PlayStation 2, and Xbox. And you think Enter the Matrix, and even on the front of the box, and this is quite unusual, it says written and directed by the Wachowskis. That was all over the advertisements. I remember there was a TV spot with an all-new story by the Wachowski brothers. Right. And... I mean, the problem is you, you see a Matrix video game, and the Matrix was so big, and the hype, especially leading up to Matrix Reloaded, was so huge. Uh, you know, the video game sold two and a half million copies over its first six weeks, which is crazy. That's really, really good. Um, so, I mean, it was a, a success. But uh, you see the Matrix in a video game, and I don't know about you, but I expect to play as Neo or Morpheus or Trinity and uh, that's that's not what happens. You get to play either as Ghost or Niobe, these two kind of minor side characters from uh, Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions. Which I, uh, I, I have been told that the only reason Niobe is in the Matrix sequels is because she's in the video game and they want her to have character crossover like they did with a kid. Hmm. I mean, also, they filmed live-action footage on the sets of the Matrix sequels for the video game as well at the same time. So that's that's kind of cool, but it just also makes it stand out. The full-motion video looks pretty good, and the graphics of the game, I think even at the time, looked pretty blurry and not, not so great. So... It, did it did it play well, or did it suffer from all the, the snags that usually haunt movie tie-in games? I don't think it played especially well. I mean, yes, you could make things go in slow motion, go into Matrix mode. And, you know, some mission, I didn't get very far. I just rented the game, uh, you know, when it came out. You could shoot the gun out of the car. And, yeah, driving levels, you had... I got stuck on some boss fight where you were fighting a helicopter fairly early on. It also doesn't help that your first mission is, like, go pick up a package from the... Go pick up the package and then go to a post office or something. Uh, there's rampant product placement with green Powerade everywhere. Oh, 
Yeah, we talked about actually, that last week. Yeah, we talked about that last time. Uh, so that that was sort of frustrating. Um, but, I mean, depending on who you played as the game, it changed what video sequences you saw, and it changed some of the levels a bit. I think one thing that was neat is there was kind of like a an option on the title screen for, for cheat codes. You were presented with like a, a neon green kind of DOS prompt, and you could type in what you wanted huh. to unlock the um, the cheat codes. Kind of like how Neo was on the computer in the beginning of the first Matrix, trying to hack in there. Um, so there are two other Matrix video games I, I played. Uh, one of these was in 2005, so quite some time after all the Matrix stuff. Late 2005, you had the game The Matrix Path of Neo that uh, came out for the PC, PlayStation 2, and Xbox. This was significantly more interesting. Well, I remember from the ads for this, and this was, I found just so intriguing, that apparently they they tried to one-up the multiple Smiths fight where all of the multiple Agent Smiths merged together into a kaiju-sized amalgam Agent Smith. That's correct. Um and also, you got to play the whole Matrix trilogy from the point of view of Neo, so it makes up a lot huh. of stuff that wasn't in the movie. Satisfying experience? I think the controls and the graphics were still kind of sloppy, so I still didn't get it. You know, I, I, I didn't think it was that great, but I think it was an improvement over Enter the Matrix. So... Let's see here. Um, the other big Matrix game was an MMO that I never played that didn't last that long called The Matrix Online. Oh, yeah. So this ran from 2005 to uh, 2009, shut down in 2009. Yeah, I guess like that... That is a release that seems a bit too after the fact. Right. Well, I mean, this came out in 2005, and so did the, you know, the Matrix uh, Neo game we just talked about, the Matrix Path of Neo. But, yeah, I mean, part of an online community is it takes a long time to build up, and had they released a MMO for Matrix right when that second Matrix uh, movie came out, I think it really could have been big. Oh, absolutely. And I've never played this game, and I'm curious as to how it was, and I'll never know, because like all MMOs, after a certain point, like they're just not officially supported. Yeah, that, that's the one The one kind of nasty thing, is that it's it can be very difficult to preserve video game experiences, it, particularly with MMOs. And, and that's something that today I would like to explore, if only for the purposes of this podcast, but it's not an option. Unless there's some sort of hacked fan server out there that keeps it going. There might be. You'd have to look. I bet if you look in YouTube, you can find, like, video clips of Matrix Online or something. But, I mean, to give you an idea of how much the popularity fell down, uh, before the game shut down, it had under 500 active players. Huh. <laughs> That's very, very low. Um, and like you said, right, Thrashers, right when it came out, it was like, two years after the Matrix trilogy wrapped up. So, very much after the fact. Uh, so, let's talk about any sequel news that have jumped out to you. Actually, yes, because of how quickly this turned around. So, earlier today, uh, it was all over the internet that Tina Fey was developing a sequel to Hocus Pocus, the uh, Bette Midler. What, really? What? Yeah, Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah. And, it tr- and it turns out that is not the case. While a Hocus Pocus sequel has long been in development, I don't know why, uh, it was actually sort of a rumor that got out of control that got reported by one website as fact, and then everybody else ran with it. In fact, Tina Fey is developing an original movie about witches in the modern day, hmm. which, which she has described as having more of a Ghostbusters feel. Interesting, you know, like people have been anticipating what Tina Fey will do as her big thing after 30 Rock uh, wrapped up not too long ago. So, um, yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. We'd have to... The only thing that reminds me of, for, for some reason, is there is a weird film 
called gee let me let me look this up this was by the same writer and director of clueless it's called vamps oh is it based on the comic book no uh uh, it's written and directed by Amy Heckerling, who also did like Fast Times at Ridgemont High and um, Clueless, and it stars Alicia Silverstone with Kristen Ritter, and it was sort of a, a supernatural kind of female-oriented comedy. Um, the bit of sequel news that jumped out to me, and this has been a long time coming, is November 2014 is when the complete television series of the Adam West Batman show is getting released. Oh, yeah. On Blu-ray, DVD, and digital HD. I cannot wait. So, undoubtedly, I think they're going to charge a lot for this because it's Batman. Well, it's also it's also the one we've been waiting for. This has been the hardest thing to get a hold of, of all the Batman things out there. Right, and it's not a show they really air on TV that much anymore in repeats. Which which is weird, because this show has such a following, and it's goddamn Batman. Unless, of it course, is. it's one of those things where the right... Well, it, well it's funny, because like I, I contend that this is a very good show, but it does seem to embarrass a lot of Batman fandom that this show exists at all. Allegedly, there's like a lot of rights reasons why this didn't come out on TV, based on oh, no, who had the rights for the TV show and who has the rights for the. Oh no, no, that that is that is what kept movies, it from yeah. from DVD for so long, uh, because uh, because AOL Time Warner owns the character, but Fox owns the show and its music, uh, and I think there might have been some other contractual things involving some of the writers, but yeah. Uh, it, it, there, it was a bit of a thorny rights issue because of the characters. So I'm glad it's all finally coming out and it's all coming out in one go. I mean, some of these series that you see, it, even if it's like a cult series, it might only get a DVD release of like the first two out of three seasons and that's it. So it's nice that it's all coming out in one go. You know, undoubtedly, it's going to be expensive and undoubtedly they're going to have some wacky collector's edition with like a some special collectible thing and figurine or something in there. Well, that, they're going to have. Well, I'm what? saying that that I got to I got to applaud them for releasing it as just one complete definitive set because it would be so easy to milk this and to release like each season separately, or even more horrifically, have sell one DVDs with all the part ones and then another DVD with all the second parts of the episode. That is pretty horrific. The well, they're going to be doing a, a a panel of this at Comic-Con uh, July 24th from 6 to 7 p.m. in Hall H. So if you're going to Comic-Con in San Diego, um, you might want to check that out because Adam West and Burt Ward and Julie Newmar are going to be at that panel. Nice. I, I do think what they'll do, which you've seen for some other big series, is they're going to come out with the box set with everything all at once, and then later on they're going to release the seasons individually after a certain amount of time. For some reason. I, I guess you figure if you really love the Batman show, you'll be more than willing to plunk down 200 bucks or whatever it's going to be for the whole series. You think they're going to include the movie in that box set or no? Uh, probably. N I'm going to assume not. no, if only because the movie's already had a, uh, a DVD and a Blu-ray release. Although, I mean, if, if they do a big collector's edition, maybe the movie will be included. Dead air. 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 Okay. Ba, 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 ba. I was looking at a text message from my wife. Okay. Um, <laughs> you, sh you should be forced to share it with the rest of the class. It was about, uh, will you get some quality yogurt, <laughs> is what it said. And I, I responded, I don't really know what that means. Uh, so. Greek yogurt. Although, you know, but real Greek yogurt, not the imitation stuff, not the Greek well, style. We, we, we have like a yogurt making machine, so I'm not. Anyway, yeah. Well, actually, it, just, it's not worth getting into. This is not the yogurt cast. Well, just thinking that sh that should be that should be our slogan: the sequel cast, like quality yogurt. Dead 
dead air, dead air, dead air, dead air, dead air. I was responding again to the yogurt text message. Okay. So we talked about some sequel news here. Um, I believe you have a question for me, Thrasher. Yes, and that question that question is, where have you hidden the microfilm? And also, what you watching? What am I watching? What am I watching? Hmm. Dead air. Dead air. Dead air. Oh, Dead. shut up. I have been watching some stuff on on TV. I've been enjoying this series, which is is kind of dumb, admittedly, but I like the Food Channel stuff every once in a while, the Food Network stuff. And there's a show I enjoy called Food Court Wars. And it takes a concept that would, I think you could do a whole series out of this, but that's not what they did. So uh, anyway, what I what I'm trying to say here is each episode you look at uh there's a lo- there's a mall in some city and they have an opening for a new food court um restaurant in there. And you get these two local businesses that are food trucks wanting to make the leap to having a a storefront in a mall and they have to kind of compete by making a, a version of their dishes and then trying to market it and all this stuff. And I, I just think it's sort of interesting because you get very different concepts. I saw one where uh, one concept, it was called Wingsa, which based on that concept, what do you think it is? Pizza and wings. Exactly, pizza and hot wings. So I think that's, that seems like a natural for a food court. The other one was all was chicken salad. Huh. All variations on chicken salad. I'm just imagining just a trough full of chicken salad, and you just take a big scoop. That's uh, that's pretty much it. And the wings are won by a nose, which I was a bit surprised. But this was like in the south, and a lot of people said, "I quite like chicken salad. I want to get it at the mall more often." So I, I just like how the, these different things compete. Uh, more amusing is another food show I've been watching called Rewrapped. Have I talked about this in the show before? Uh, no, no, you I haven't. Have. So it, it's hosted by Joey Fatone. Yes, that Joey Fatone. From NSYNC. Mm. Fame. And uh, one of the judges is Mark Summers of Double Dare fame. Oh, cool. And the idea is they take a some some well-known uh, like corporate product, like let's say uh, Pepperidge Farm Goldfish. And the first challenge is they have three chefs try and replicate a homemade version of a goldfish. And then the judges try and see if it's accurate. And then the second part of the show is they have to make a unique recipe using the actual, the real goldfish or whatever, the real thing itself. And I think it's fun, it's stupid, and it's short. And I get a kick out of seeing Mark Summers, who's very diplomatic when he's eating something that tastes like shit. What have you been watching? Well, I've been watching a lot of classic Twilight Zone. Any episodes stand out? Well, I mean, a lot of them. And that's one thing that I've noticed now, like watching uh, most of seasons one, two, uh, and three kind of within the space of a a long weekend, uh, is that there really aren't that – there really aren't that many bad episodes – like the wor- the worst episode of the Twilight Zone is still better than the best episode of most other things that would have been on TV at the time. And um, the original Twilight Zone was all in black and white, yes. correct? The original series. Yeah, and also the other thing I like is you know the, the, lots of people kind of malign the show for for being reliant on twist endings, but the the twists and shocker endings when the show uses them it doesn't always although it does use them a lot they're the least important things about those episodes. Most of the show really are it really are these little character studies and morality plays, and you know if there is a shock or twist ending it's just there to give a little a little extra oomph to the end of the show, and then boom the show's over. Hmm. Oh no, I'm really in a zoo, and then the credits roll. Yeah, that's the series I need to watch more of. 
it's, I've only seen you know kind of the greatest hits over the years, and there, there's so much out there. It really, and, and it was also just great to see who shows up in the show: Sid Caesar, uh, Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner, Carol Burnett. Lots of awesome actors show up in the series. Buster great. Keaton, Joe Foray. Burgess Meredith. Lots of Burgess Meredith. And it's also just it's also kind of just a very writerly show. The the dialogue is is it, it's very written dialogue. And I really and I really do like that. It, it's almost it's almost like you're watching a stage play that's being filmed. Nice. You know, in high school I got to watch an episode of Twilight Zone that was actually a French film that for some reason they aired on the series. Huh. That's about like some fugitive that's escaping or something, but I think he ends up being Hun at the end. I'm trying to remember. Incident at something bridge. It'll, it'll, it might come to me. I don't know. Well, I think we know what time it is. What time for Gertrude Stein? Not, no, not that time for that quite yet. Time for the Paul Goebel Memorial Mashup. Oh, Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. That was the... Uh, That's exactly what it is. But yeah. yes, the Paul Goebel Show Memorial Mashup, where I take two mediocre impressions and combine them into one impression that crashes and burns, and Matt and our guests have to figure out what that impression is. Go for it. Well, you know, I've been in film for quite some time. Uh, Quite possibly over 114 years, depending on how I reveal my age. I remember uh, one of my first films was working with Francis Ford Coppola, a maniac of a director. That's why I respected him. (coughs) And, of course, after that, I played a cowboy on Paul Rubin's show. Very peculiar man, I must say. And, of course, I'm currently on a show with The Cannibal. And when I heard that I was going to be on the cannibal show, I said, excellent. Only then I found out I wasn't the cannibal because the casting agent is nothing but a common dundipate. Who is that? I have no idea. Uh, That was Charles Montgomery Fishburne. Okay, so I get Charles Montgomery's reference to Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Yep. What is Fishburne? Lawrence Fishburne. Damn it. He was in Apocalypse Now from Francis Ford Coppola. He was the original the Cowboy Curtis on Pee-wee's Playhouse. Morpheus in The Matrix, of course. Yep. Which I left you know, that I, out because I thought that would be too obvious. Yeah. I was so thrown off, I think, by the voice that that distracted me from all the other details. Did it sound like a decent Mr. Burns? That's all I care about. It was okay. Excellent. Now that was better. I decided to kick up my heels and indulge my sweet tooth. See my vest, see my vest. Made from real gorilla chest. See these loafers, <laughs> former gophers. Oh, yes. Classic bit. What a classic bit there. Smithers, um, who is that Adelbrain? I, I, I don't know, sir. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah well, when you don't know what to do in improv, just say, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the best the best kind of improv and just like well hello sir are you here to buy a hat I don't know because you know you you technically didn't you know you know you technically yes anded or at least you didn't do the opposite of yes anding okay so let's do a bit where I'll be the I don't know guy <laughs> okay <laughs> so go. Uh, uh, all right. Well, I have to applaud you for being so prompt uh, in arriving to your job interview early, Mr. Stevens. I don't know. So, uh, what what qualifies you for this position? I don't know. Really? Do you have any references? I don't know. Your former employer spoke very highly of you. I don't know. Well, <laughs> looking things over, you are completely, completely qualified. I don't be- know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that salvaged the bit. I guess. In, in, 
<laughs> interrupting me before I could come up with a hackney job and salvage the bit. I think in college we call that fuck you improv. <laughs> Well, you I remember, would just interrupt you to end the bit. Well, do you remember that thing where we were going to do the pre-scripted improv show? J- you, Jason, and I had talked about that. Where friend of the yeah, show, Jersey goes. Jason, now Georgia Jason, where we were gonna we were gonna like set it off like it was an improv show. It was like, okay, we need a, we need a suggestion for an occupation. You know, someone in the audience would say accountant. We go, I think I heard horse rancher. And we would just all, only do pre-written bits. But we would still ask the audience for suggestions, which we would then ignore gleefully. I think you'd have to do that as like a uh, stage show, maybe. Well, I was, I was just talking to uh, to Georgia Jason, and we were saying that we would have to call our improv uh, group Troupe Du Jour. Hmm. Indeed. Well, I hope, listeners, you've enjoyed this episode of the sequel cast on the Animatrix. Uh, tune in next time where we'll talk about the Matrix Revolutions and round out our look at the Matrix series. We're, we're rounding it out or squaring it off. It all depends on how we feel about that film. Right. Uh, I'm actually going to be on vacation for a few weeks, so it might be a bit of time before this uh, next Matrix episode goes up. But if you haven't listened to our past episodes, we've been doing this for nearly five years now. There's plenty of old episodes at SequelCast.com where we talk about such series as Ninja Turtles and uh, Highlander. I don't know why. I always go to those two. I'm not sure why. Star Wars, Star Trek. The Godfather. Rocky. Caddyshack. Caddyshack 2 and so much more. Lord of the Rings. The animated Uh, one. The animated Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. That's right. So check out all those old episodes at SequelCast.com. If you like what you hear, consider donating to us via PayPal at our uh, PayPal button at the website, SequelCast.com. Follow me on Twitter at SequelCast. Follow me at Internet Mayor. If you're in the Portland, Oregon area on Tuesdays, you can catch me host a pub quiz for Geeks Who Drink at the Ram in Wilsonville, Oregon, just 18 miles outside of Portland. So um, for the SequelCast, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying to a mechanical mind, all reality is virtual. You got yourself out, kid. I love you, Neo. I want to give you Matrix kisses. They call. <laughs> I don't know. The sequel cast is a hipster goblin production. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.